Welcome to the Artistic Foodies, the show that explores life through the lens of art and food. I'm Abbas Muhammad. And I'm Irfan Raidan. And today we're talking about halal meat certification with Sheikh Jaber Tarin of Hafsa, the Halal Food Standards Alliance of America. Hafsa is a well-known and respected halal certifying body that started in the San Francisco Bay Area and now certifies halal restaurants across many metropolitan areas of the U.S. We talk about the process of getting certified, explore differences between hand and machine slaughtered halal, and reflect on how far the halal meat industry and the food scene has evolved over the last few decades. Sheikh Jaber Tarin is a registered associate marriage and family therapist. He has served as a teacher at several Islamic institutions, including Dua Seminary, where he teaches the Islamic sciences, and Noor Institute. Sheikh Jaber's professional interests include providing mental well-being and spiritual direction to the city of Fremont, integrating Islamic spirituality and mental wellness, and teaching Islamic theology to young adults and college students. He started working with Hafsa in 2010 as an inspector, then as a director of chapter development, and now has added Halal Food Educator to his list of titles. Tell me about your relationship with food. You know, do you cook? What did you, what is your relationship with cooking? What is your relationship with food? And, and how'd you get involved into Hafsa? Give us the, the backstory of the superhero. <laughs> yeah, no, well, honestly, actually my, my, uh, my history with food personally is that I've always enjoyed trying to get involved more in cooking and actually being involved. I would certainly say in more recent years, I've gotten a lot more um, interested particularly in meats and different cuts of meats and learning a lot more about that. Um, ironically, I've been working with Hafsa now coming on 14 years and um, mashallah, it's been an awesome journey for me. It's something that I'm extremely passionate about. I love this work and I love this whole science and the field of it. Um, but my own personal food journey, I guess you could say, um, started just in more recent times. I think it comes with marriage and kids and more responsibility you kind of end up finding yourself in the kitchen a little more often um so you try to make the best of it so yeah yeah and then of course the way i got connected to hafsa was um um as a matter of fact it wasn't in a very direct way it was more indirect as a matter of fact mufti abdullah nana who is the uh, founder one of the founders of the organization a religious director he actually was doing a series uh, just a some Islamic lecture series at one of the local masjids and I happened to be there. And after, as is the case with most scholars, they get inundated with just random questions, right? After the class is over or the program's over, a bunch of young guys get together and they just sort of ask Sheikh all sorts of things like, is this okay? And what about this? And what about jinns and all sorts of stuff? So myself and a dear friend of mine, we kept doing that with uh, Mufti Abdullah and his programs were ongoing for like six, seven weeks. And it just so happened that that was around the time that he started Hafsa and started the organization. So we started asking about that. And that's when we really got involved. And that's sort of when everything sort of came together for us. Then we started getting more involved, learning a lot more about the organization. And then he had a the first ever conference in Mill Valley at the Mill Valley Masjid. And it was there that we were 
formally introduced to Hafsa, the people involved with Hafsa, and the good work that they're doing. Marshall, it's beautiful that um, this journey came about so organically. Yeah, you know, and yeah. it's like you know when things happen like that, it's not like, oh yeah, you you put in an application or resume, but rather this is something that naturally has become a part of your life. It's always sure. amazing to witness stuff like that. And um and so and and thank God for marriage. It put you in the kitchen, right? I mean, personally, <laughs> personally, I'm on this. I'm evangelical about this mission of Muslim men need to cook. Muslim men need to learn how to cook. If you don't know how. Type in halal fast quarantine cooking. You'll see all of my Ramadan videos. You know, I'll teach you how to make samosas, karai, you know, mango fluda. Forget about it. Anything you need, man. This is this is the hill that I'm gonna die on. So I'm really glad that um, that life has has created situations that place you in the kitchen. <laughs> yeah, it's a good thing. I think I think definitely I, I may not be as skilled as mashallah some of the sisters and some of the brothers rather, but uh, definitely with certain grilling, um, certain steaks, certain cuts. I think that's kind of where I found my niche and I've really sort of began to appreciate that and enjoy that a lot more. So, and I can certainly tell you that a well done steak is very different than a medium rare steak. And, you know, <laughs> it took a lot of convincing, I think, but ultimately once you kind of cross that path in life, there's just no going back. You know, Alhamdulillah, this is how we heal the intergenerational <laughs> trauma of yeah. well done steaks. That's right. That's right. Okay, well, uh, jumping back to Hafsa for a second here, uh, we have you know we have this Facebook group which I think you you're familiar with called the Bay Area Halal Foodies, and we have a lot of um, <clears throat> discussions on there, as you know. So mm-hmm. some of the questions that come up with people ask is. Um, is something does something have to be Hafsa certified to be actually considered halal, or what's the difference between Hafsa certified halal meat and other halal meats which are certified by other organizations? Yeah, and this is a one of those common questions, right? These are those. This is one of the ones that we received all the time. I mean, almost really from the inception of Hafsa's existence this question came about, right? Are you redefining halal? Are you setting the, the, the definitive meaning of the word so that if it's not in line with your program, then does that mean uh, unequivocally now it's haram for consumption? So what I would say to that, and of course I understand I'm representing the organization here and saying this, but um, it's our organization's stance and Hafsa's stance that we don't claim that any product not certified is automatically haram. This has never been our stance. This has never been our position. And so absolutely, a product can be halal if it's not Hafsa certified. Um, and the primary difference here is, is that people interpret the word halal or zabiha very differently. And one of the goals of Hafsa, you know, is one of the primary goals of Hafsa is to set a standard, a specific standard by which certain people are aligned with or inclined to. Um, and those are the standards that we've identified, which, for example, are hand cut, you know, by a Muslim who recites the tasmiya at the time of slaughter. That would be sort of the basis for our standards moving and, and 
that's kind of what we would classify as being HUTSA certified. Other people have often said, oh, well, that's how we slaughter back home. Okay, sure, that's right. Um, but then <clears throat> the idea is, is that because we live in a globalized and a, and a, and a very sort of uh, the world has become like open borders when it comes to understanding this definition, oftentimes there are new definitions that come out for the word zabiha, for the word halal. And we have nothing really to say as an organization to those other organizations. However, all we can stick to is our standards, which are what we are sharing with others and promoting to others. I think people can um, look at something which is mechanically slaughtered. I think people look at other methods of slaughter, um, kosher. People look at um, the way the animal is slaughtered, the, the environment that the animal was brought up in, all those various factors uh, go into another other organization's definitions. But I guess just to bring it back, um, we have never held a position that if it's not Hafsa, it's not halal. Um, so it can be halal. But Hafsa's sort of standards are, uh, you know, if you look at it in the majority of the world, generally speaking, right, I say this generally speaking, um, if you take an animal, you take the name of Allah, a Muslim comes with a sharp blade and he solders the animal, cutting across the throat, the jugular vein, um, the esophagus, uh, the trachea, then that would be considered halal and that would be the product that everybody would be comfortable eating. with. Now, where does the varying differences of opinion start from? It starts the moment we deviate from that traditional practice. Why? And again, I'm not saying here that it's wrong. I'm saying where does the differences come from? It comes from when it's not that method. And so the inclusion of, you know, mechanically soldered, the inclusion of shocking, the inclusion of using a gun or using a, a bolt or whatever it may be, that's where the differences come up. And certain organizations decided that they're comfortable with some versus others. So to each their own. But for those who are interested in this particular methodology that Hubs has adopted, that's kind of what we're continuing our education with. Because mm, <clears throat> none of the technologies that you mentioned were present during the time of the Prophet ﷺ. None of them were present when halal was being defined, when Zabiha was being defined. So all of these new things, it's like you got to be like, well, is this okay or right. is this not? And so... So basically, from what I'm understanding is what Hafsa says is we're going to go with the traditional method. Anything that has a question mark, we'll leave that for other people to figure out. We're going to be, you know, playing it, playing it safe, playing it traditional. Yeah, for the most part. I mean, I mean, I would certainly say that I think that, you know, there are modern issues that come up that require scholars and a body of scholars to investigate and say, hey, is there any scope in the religion for this? And I think what's amazing about our faith is, is that there is so much room within it to to, to, to explore and see, is there really room in this or not? And I'm very grateful to be connected to such scholars who are in that investigative field and they are muftis and they're researching and they're, you know, this whole thing about um, lab-grown meat, right? That's a prime example of this, right? Lab-grown meat is a new thing. It's a modern issue that came about and having mm -hmm. scholars research that, it's, it's incredibly important. And having a fatwa on that and knowing where we stand on that, knowing where we go with that, um, it's something that, you know, it's, it requires that deep research. So I don't want to sound like, you know, any new advancements in technology, software, maybe production or whatever helps us totally against it. All I'm mm -hmm. suggesting is that it does require a deep investigation from the right and correct religious body to do that investigation. 
Um, and in this case, it'd be the Muftis. And if they give the green light based on their research, then we would consider that as well. Yeah. That makes that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think also what's really fascinating, especially with some of these newer newer things, newer practices, newer technologies, is like it's all brand new. Everyone's trying to figure it out at the same time. And so yeah. you know, oftentimes I've found that not every Islamic scholar is gonna come to the same conclusion. Right. Um, right. There, you know, you have the whole wide spectrum from hand slaughtered meat only. Um, all the way to, well, we're living in a Christian country. It's the people of the book. So everything is okay. Right. So it's a very, it's very, and, and here's what's fascinating is because growing up, it was always just like, oh, we're right. And everyone else is ridiculous, <laughs> but growing up and, and, and using a little bit of critical thinking and realizing, well, everyone is trying to figure this out simultaneously. We're not all going to reach the same conclusion. That's natural. And so there's a little bit of um, and, you know, I try to shy away from this word, but there's like a little bit of pluralism within mm -hmm. the jurisprudence of these modern issues, which is very fascinating to me. It is. It is. And I, and I, would, I would go so far as to say that the, the ikhtilaf and the various differences among scholars in the interpretation of the hadith and in the interpretation of the, you know, understanding of some of these things can be considered a, a mercy because there's different ways mm -hmm. that the sunnah can be implemented in practice. And I think that I, I don't want to go too deeply into the scholarly point of the discussion, but I will say this much that I consider a great blessing to know that we have scholars that dedicated time and energy and effort to make this their whole thing, their whole world, is mm. identifying options for Muslims to, you know, what they can consume, what they can't consume. You know, the, the, the whole issue of like reading ingredients on the ingredients on the back of packages has always been an issue that's that's um, plagued people for like years. Right. So having brothers and, and sisters who are from the Muslim community who do this research, who know the limitations of what Muslims can or can't consume and then being able to work in tandem with scholars is a fantastic, is an absolutely amazing blessing. So I'm actually proud to say that, like with Hafsa, we have like these you know, ingredient specialists who this is their work, like literally their full-time job is send them dozens upon dozens of ingredients, have them do the back-end research, cross-reference with scholars to see, you know, what is the percentage of acceptability of this or that, if its origins are from dates or from grapes, is there permission, permission for us to use that permissibility in that? And then drawing that from all of those conclusions, we then can make an official statement regarding it. Mm -hmm. It's really for making it easier on the Muslim community. Because if you think about it from the point of view that, well, what if that didn't exist, it'd be a guessing game all over again, back like how it was in, you know, whatever the, the early 2000s, maybe early 90s, even, right? Everyone's just trying to figure things out on their own. There is always horror stories, right, to everything. But then there's always a, you know, there's also a positive side to things, so. Yeah, and I, I think I think that's really interesting also. And like going back to the, the 80s and 90s, a, a lot of stories that we hear like, oh, well, there were there were no halal meat stores. We had to go an hour and a half. And we didn't at that time know about halal hand cut and halal machine cut and things were simple. And there was just this one thing. But of course, ignorance isn't something to be strived for. So now we have the knowledge, we have the understanding. I think one of probably one of the most polarizing and divisive labels that I've seen people get into fights about <laughs> is machine cut versus hand cut. 
Um, and so you knew this question is going to come up. <laughs> I'd love to know some education, some background, if you could let Absolutely. us know what, what is machine cut? What is hand cut? Um, why are so many people okay with a machine cut? What is superior? Um, and why? Like, you know, take us a little bit into the philosophy of it. Um, yeah, yeah, no, that's a very good question. And honestly, I feel personally, like as much as I've answered this question, I get happy when people ask this question only because here's the thing, even though as an organization, we only support the hand cut methodology for our proteins, it's very important that people understand what both of these systems are that are in effect so that they can make an informed decision, okay? And our part and our role as an organization is to provide both um, uh, the education behind it, which is primarily my role now uh, working with Hafsa education, but also so that people can learn more about what literally they're consuming. Because of course, as Muslims, we believe that the food that we eat not only has a um, a physical benefit to our health, but it's also incredibly spiritual. And I've had multiple conversations with people in the past, non-Muslims even, where I've shared that that you know, to tell a Muslim that that you know, you know, we'll cook something on the side for you or something like that, and we'll cross-contaminate it, or we only have one set of utensils for you. I'm sorry, you have to share. It's it's literally like part and parcel of their faith. So to take food out of the equation is like cutting a Muslim's spirituality in half. Right, it's so significant. It's so important. So, just to get back down to the details of the question, right? Which is, what is hand soldered? What is machine soldered? So, hand soldered, like I just mentioned earlier, it is to have a sharp blade. A Muslim who pre pronounces the name of Allah, Bismillah, Allahu Akbar, at the time of slaughter, cutting the animal at the neck, cutting the um, carotid arteries, the jugular vein the esophagus and the trachea, preferably and ideally in one cut, uh, rendering the animal unconscious as the animal bleeds out. And this is considered the hand slaughtered method, or you can say the orthodox method of slaughter. Um, and this is what you could say also that is probably the majority of Muslims around the world would, if they witnessed this, they would understand what that is. Okay. Now what machine, and, and again, the idea here with hand cut is that anybody even if they hold a different of opinion a different opinion the idea is is that if everybody just saw that nobody would have a difference of opinion on whether or not they could eat that meat right, right. that's that's the idea here so you know that that's happening you let's just say you witnessed it let's say it's idul adha and you were there at the farm and you saw somebody doing that i think nobody would have an objection with that whatever background you come from whatever mug have you follow whatever it is you'd see that you'd be like we're good to go now, where that changes, like I mentioned earlier as well, is, is that once we deviate from that practice, anything else that's included now becomes a question. So what machine slaughter is in particular, and just to clarify, machine slaughter is a practice which is done for poultry. Uh, so generally it's done for chickens. Um, I would imagine it's probably possible to do also for turkeys and ducks as well, although right off the top, I can't. I can't think of any particular plant that I've seen, um, but it's done for poultry. And is it, sorry, is it only yeah. chicken? So machine cut, hand cut doesn't even apply to things like lamb and beef right. and goat. That's right. Exactly. So, so, so when someone is asking, is this machine slaughtered or hand slaughtered beef, they're, they're going off of. That's right. They're kind of, they're kind of uh, piggybacking off of that ch chicken issue. 
Um, and so I, I often tell people, listen, if you're concerned about hand cut, there's another issue, which we'll get into for beef. Um, and that's actually called a vertical (laughs) cut, right? That's a totally separate issue altogether. But in any case, we'll highlight this for now, um, which is that what does machine solder look like? So, um, having seen a machine solder in practice, what, what you can expect is just like in any, let's just say a commercial slaughterhouse, you'll have birds hung by their feet uh, alive on a conveyor belt and as they're passing by in a hand cut facility you'll have muslim slaughterman standing there grabbing the bird right by the throat and cutting um and saying bismillah grabbing the chickens and just cutting right and they take turns usually you have seven to ten slaughtermen muslim slaughtermen they're constantly you just see their lips moving bismillah 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 in a machine solder facility, which you'll find is those same birds are hung upside down, right, by their feet on the conveyor belt. And as they're going, there's a stationary rotary blade that's just spinning. And as the birds come by upside down, their necks get cut by this rotary blade. And they, the conveyor belt keeps moving and the blade is spinning and it's just cutting every single bird as it passes by. Now, that's what the machine solder method looks like. I don't want this conversation to kind of go in any particular direction, but oftentimes, and at least in America, seldom will you find some of the things that are found in the traditional hand cut method also found in the machine slaughter. And what I mean by that is oftentimes the tesmiya recited by a Muslim present at the time of slaughter is usually absent. And I think the challenge is, is that if you've never been to a machine slaughter facility, all of the ideas and the understanding behind the concept become theoretical and a little bit more like philosophical almost because you're trying to conceptualize what's taking place there without actually having been there and seen there. Again, at the same time, the purpose of me explaining this is educational to be very just direct about it and clear, that oftentimes you find that there isn't someone standing there directly at the rotary blade um, saying Bismillah, saying the name of Allah, um, perhaps even the Muslim present on the kill line, that's questionable as well. And that can be a challenge oftentimes. But in practice, by and large, that's what the difference between hand cut and machine solder. And why, of course, there's a difference of opinion between the two is because of some of these arguments, which is that is there a Muslim present at the time of slaughter? Is the name of Allah being taken at the time of slaughter? Um, what what makes that bird halal if we're missing some of the key components that we understand makes a protein halal at the time of slaughter? So when that's missing now, what then validates the authenticity of that product for halal consumption? And that's where the differences of opinion come up. And there's a whole take on that, uh, which we don't necessarily need to get into, but there's so much that can be said there. And so there you see the clear division. There's two camps, right? The machine slaughter camp and the hand slaughter camp and that's kind of the main uh, takeaways from it it's a really interesting education I, I, I appreciate you painting the picture yeah uh, a gruesome but necessary picture <laughs> um i you know because it's so divisive and so polarizing oftentimes you have people who are like okay yes this is this is the camp that i'm in and if you're in that camp then you're wrong and you're doing sin 
And so I'm wondering now, okay, so we've, we've defined halal hand cut. We've defined halal machine cut. We have acknowledged that different scholars have different opinions. Now, now how about the etiquette of, of dealing with the other camp? So that's, that's, that's where, you know, that's where a lot of, I think, because otherwise it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be polarizing. It'd be like, okay, cool. You, you know, you have this practice, you have this, okay. You only do Jomo wearing a kufi. Okay. I don't like there's no people getting in fights over that. Right? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and I agree with you. And I'll, I'll say that um, I think ever since this sort of education began happening all those 14 years ago, I think this has been some of those, um, I don't know, side effects of some maybe really overzealous community members who um, tend to think that this may be like a type of competition of sorts, or maybe even like a, a kind of, I don't know, like right versus wrong. And, and, you know, honestly, I, what I'll say is this, that our organization, again, the objectives are very clear. Um, we are promoting a very particular type of product through a particular slaughter method uh, and a, through a specific system. And that's what we are promoting. And that's what we are verifying through our certification process. At no point, I think ever did do we ever sort of encourage the community nor do we ever kind of give off this sentiment that you know now everybody go and, and do their own individual individual investigation barge into restaurants go into the back kitchen bust out receipts and you know push this on to store owners that hey you know i need to see everything and i've heard the horror stories right I've, I've certainly been there and i'll share a story that hopefully um explains the sentiment when i started with hafsa all those years back and Mufti Abdullah Nana was my mentor and he was training me. I remember one of the first stores that we had certified, of course, I won't mention any names, but one of the first, it was a grocery store that we had certified and the store owner was real excited about it and he was real happy about it. And so he wanted us to come in and do the weekly inspections like we normally do and had the receipts ready for us. And it just so happened a few months into the certification, for whatever reason, the store owner um, started to uh, have doubts about bringing in only hand slaughtered. And he brought his own reasons for it. And I won't mention them, but he brought his own reasons for them. And so his he would stop coming to the store. And instead, his employees would just be there all the time. So once I went for my regular inspections and I saw the employee and he was trying to hide from me. And I, finally, I flagged him down and I said, hey, I'm just, I'm just here. You've seen me for like three months now. Uh, I'm just here doing the same thing. It's a new week. I'm doing my inspection and it wasn't a busy time, right? We take all that into consideration, go on the off hour where it's not rush hour. And, and he's just, and then finally he comes out and he goes, Hey, look, I'm really sorry, but the store owner, he was purchasing meat. That's like chicken in this instance, once a week before you guys. Now he's purchasing three times a week, right? His orders have come in literally at three times the amount that he was before. And now he's trying to maximize off of that and capitalize off of that by putting in some machine slaughtered meat in here as well. And so mixing hand cut and machine cut is not a Hafsa policy. And also um, it's much cheaper, right? Machine slaughter is cheaper than hand cut because of the uh, lack of physical labor for the physical cutting. So ultimately we had to go through our process and we had to pull their certificate because there was proof and we saw the boxes and we, the delivery guy came in and he admitted to it, et cetera. So we have a clause in our certificate contract that talks about that 
you know, we would charge a sort of a, like a breaking the contract fee because you, you know, uh, decided to switch out, et cetera, um, and change your products. Well, what ended up happening, which is very interesting, is I went to go tell Mufti Abdullah this. And I said, hey, Mufti Sab, you know, this restaurant, they did this. I'm ready to catch them. We caught them. You know, let's go in uh, and just, and just you know, call them out and put them on blast, etc. And I'll never forget the advice that he gave me, right? And he said to me, he said, Jabir, our goal is not to put people on blast. Our goal is not to be like FBI investigators. Our goal is to go and help the community who want to do hand cut to carry hand cut. And so, you know, I know we have that clause in the contract, but forget about the clause. You know, maybe the guy is going through something. Maybe he needs to switch things up for him. Remove the certificate. Do that part of it. But there's no need to make a scene about it. There's no need to, um, you know, uh, uh, charge him some fee. There's no need to make a whole announcement about, like, the fact that this guy is X, Y, and Z. He's a crook, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, treat everyone with kindness and treat them with the respect that they deserve. They're trying to run a business. And I was blown away because I had gotten into the heat of like, oh, okay, I'm like, I'm the you know, investigator and I'm going to go and catch this person, et cetera. But Mufti Abdullah really humbled me in there in that moment. And that has really basically shaped not only my understanding of the organization and the inspections and all the work that we do, but every other inspector that comes on board that I personally train, I share this exact same thing with them. That listen, even if the store owner gets upset, you calmly excuse yourself and say, you know what? I'm sorry that you're upset. I'm going to go ahead and leave and I'll let Jobber know. We have a very firm policy against harshness, rudeness, um, bad character, bad akhlaq with our store owners. Because at the end of the day, these are all our, you know, largely our Muslim business owners and we want them to succeed. We want them to do good. Hey, look, I get just as excited as anybody else when we get a new restaurant opening up in the Bay Area, right? Especially when it's a new cuisine. The last thing that I want is for someone to be, um, you know, ticked off because of someone's bad or poor character, right? So as far as Hafsa is concerned and our own staff and our own employee and our own sentiments, we have an absolutely zero tolerance policy for that type of negative behavior, whether in person or online, right? Let's go, let's connect that to the Bay Area chat, right? Like the Facebook group. We have a zero tolerance policy on that. And I communicate this to my inspectors, my volunteers. I always mention that to them. Always have good character. Always have good character. Don't respond harshly because you never know. Maybe this week or sorry, this year might be tough on a store owner to carry hand cut only. And perhaps in the next year or in the year after that, maybe they'd want to make the switch over and we want to be there to support them. Right. Um, as for, however, it's worth mentioning, as for other people in the community that are just overly excited and they take action. Of course, you know, you can't be responsible for the actions of others. Of course, we do education. We constantly share this, that the best way to people's hearts is through good character. So, you know, treat people well. If somebody decides to interpret that totally differently and take things on a different route, unfortunately, while we're sad that that happens, we never condone such actions. We never support those sort of actions. And it's just an unfortunate reality of, I guess, the world that we live in right now. You know, so I hope that makes it clear. And now, a quick word from our sponsor. Located just down the road from MCA in Santa Clara, Crusty Pizza and Pasta is a family-owned restaurant and caterer that serves 100% hand-slaughtered halal meats. Besides their well-known pizzas such as the garlic chicken and the carnivore pizza, they also offer a diverse menu including pastas, 
burgers, lamb chops, and weekend specials. Weekend specials are always changing, but have regularly featured unique, authentic offerings including mendi, nihari, paya, and freshly baked naans made right in their pizza oven. Check them out online at crustypizza.com or call them at 408-246-1800. And now, back to the show. Yeah, thank you very much for sharing that story and uh, explanation. Uh, I think uh, everybody uh, we will appreciate that. So just to follow up a little bit about that, uh, about the etiquette and things like that, um, you know, as you know, with, uh, you know, as with Halal Fest, we work with a lot of different um, business owners, you know, from full restaurants to food trucks to um, mom and pop, please pay people. Uh, you know, people and uh, home cooks and things like that. I've talked to a lot of different business owners and a lot of things, uh, common issues come up when it when it comes to certification. So um, one of them, and I'm not going to also, I'm not going to mention any business owners names or anything as well, but I have, I have mentioned this to, uh, you know, uh, Mufti Nana and others before in the past is that um, a lot of times um, the business owners are kind of stuck in a situation where if there's only one or two approved suppliers, they are kind of dependent on that supplier, right? So, for example, there was a recent restaurant and uh, who was Hufsa certified, and then recently they it was, and again, I, I appreciate what Hafsa does, uh, you know, and I'm not a I'm not one of the hardcore followers of Hafsa, but I do appreciate what they do, and I know it's a it's a thankless job, you know. So I I know what you guys go through, and I appreciate that. But you know, some things I disagree with with how things are done. So one of them things is like they post something on Facebook or social media that this restaurant is no longer uh, Hafsa certified, and I understand that you have obligation to do that but in this particular case i talked to the restaurant owner directly after i saw that and he said you told me that um in this case he was getting his beef from harris ranch you know that's one of the one of the hand cut certified suppliers and harris ranch even though he's regularly ordering from them they had some kind of delay for over 10 days right so he wasn't able to get that particular hand-cut certified meat from them to run his business, right? So he had to go to another supplier and get another hand-cut halal beef for his to make up for the fact that he couldn't get the beef from Harris Ranch. For you know, he 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 can't run his business with you know waiting for two weeks to get the meat from them, right? So because of that issue, according to what he told me is that, um, you know, he had to go somewhere else. And I know a lot of other restaurant owners do this sometimes. And then, you know, obviously because of that, even though it was still hand-cut halal beef, it's not uh, one of the brands that were certified by Hafsa, so they took away the certification. So one thing that I would, you know, again, I, I mentioned this to other people as well in the Hafsa organization is, if there's a way that Hafsa as an organization can talk to the suppliers 
to make things easier for the business owners because, you know, Hafsa is the major organization and they have a little bit more influence, especially now that you have grown so much over the past, you know, decade or or 14, 15 years now, right? So you should be able to at least uh, put a little bit of pressure on the suppliers. That's what that's what I, my point is that, hey, make sure that, you know, we're bringing you guys customers, right? We're bringing you guys customers who are purchasing meat from you guys. So you got to make sure that if they're ordering, you got to keep them supplied. And then, so that's one point I have. And then on the other side, I would say, come up with a, um, a program where instead of automatically cutting off the certification of a restaurant that is going through this type of issue, it's like, it's kind of like not their fault, right? They have, they were, they have to run their business and, and because they couldn't get it from this supplier. So that's what I would, you know, I would say, Hey, before you publicly put on social media that, Hey, these guys are no longer certified. We should try to work with them to try to help them out and get another alternative source, right? Get an alternative source that is certified so that you can keep, keep them under the, uh, you know, Hafsa certification. Absolutely. And I appreciate you bringing um, some of those comments or concerns to light. Uh, one thing I'll just say is it, it is our standard policy. And of course, um, these things can be case specific. So I don't want to, you know, dive too deeply into that. But what I would say is, is that it is our standard practice policy that if uh, a product is approved by us, uh, we will promote that product because we have oversight. We have the ability to vet the facility and see the slaughter practice and be able to have that open communication, open relationship with the facility um, to see the products that are being, uh, the, the proteins that are being slaughtered there and harvested. So first and foremost, I think that if a, a uh, store owner is purchasing products that are approved by our organization and Hafsa, then we do allow that store to continue their certification process. The second part of that is if a the the process of decertification is not really sort of um, kind of like a shotgun decision. Actually, it actually goes through two different chains of approval in order to get to that point and usually takes over a week unless there's been a gross violation and what i mean by that is a gross violation being for example a product which is you know totally does not meet our standards and the store already purchased it and they've already started supplying you know on uh, their customers with it it is our policy that is both communicated at the time of certification uh, as well as that the, the, at the time of decertification that any time a product which is not approved by our organization is already cut and served and produced and you know put out, gets served, we have the right to remove certification. And the reason for that is because the consumers that are now uh, patronizing your restaurant are doing so because of the idea that it is a hand-slaughtered product or products that are approved by the organization. And while there may be consumers that are not only you know worried about hand-slaughtered, the point of the contract is to ensure that authenticity. So uh, the decertification process is not so cut and paste that it's just like, hey, you know what? I feel like you purchased from someone else. I don't like that. Let's just call it. Um, and I'll also add to that point that there is uh, 
deliberation that goes into ensuring that that product is approved. And usually before we remove certification, we have an entire sort of thorough process of offering re- other alternative products. We offer them um, all the other products that were available on the market, you know, even if it may be slightly more expensive or if it's in another state or if it's another distributor who can provide it. We do all the backend research to ensure that the store owner can still maintain a hand-soldered product at whatever reasonable price that they can manage to get it so that they don't have to cut off their supply and that they're not left stranded. Um, and so I, while unfortunate in this particular person's case, I would also just say that we always take our time to be deliberate about the removal of certification, um, especially especially when we know that the business is in full operation or they're not doing as well or you know whatever is going on. We always take that consideration to ensure that we try to provide them with the resource before that. But certain times, it is just the case that it reaches critical mass. And as an organization, we have to be genuine to our cause and genuine to the original message of the organization, which is to maintain a certain code of ethics and a certain standard by which we want all our stores to abide by. And if at any point we find that there is a gross violation of that, we, although again, it's, it's bitter because you don't want to see that happen and you don't want to cause anybody any harm, but that is the original agreement that these store owners do sign when they come on board that is explained to them. And so, like I said, we try our absolute best to be there for them, to provide products for them, to provide resources and, and alternatives. But if at the end of the day, the order is already pro- the, the product is already ordered, the product is already in in line or being produced or being sold, and it does violate because it doesn't meet the standards that we are looking for, then unfortunately, for those reasons, we will have to remove the certification. So, just a quick is, follow up. Is, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, just a quick follow up to that. Uh, so do you explain that uh, process of getting alternative uh, suppliers ahead of time? Like at yeah, the beginning? definitely, definitely. So, so what mm-hmm. we generally our practice is such that when we send the first inspector, and I guess this goes into what certification looks like and how we do that whole process. So I'll kind of segue it into that. But the idea here is, is that um, let's say we get an interested business for certification. They submit an application via the website. It comes in. The first thing we do is email communication on what are your current suppliers. And that's the first step in the vetting process to see whether it meets the HFSA standards for hand cut, um, verification, no cross-contamination, making sure all the, the processes are in line. Once that we're able to support them with email communication, meaning let's say all their proteins already check out, that's already those hand cut products that we approve of, then we send our inspector to do a site visit. So the inspector will go do a site visit. He'll check invoices. He'll check the facility. Um, he'll look at all the dry ingredients, the wet ingredients. He'll look at all the proteins. He'll take pictures of all those items. We'll take an inventory of all those items. We'll take it back. The research team that I mentioned earlier, now they'll go through the whole thing. It takes approximately about a week, depending on the ingredients and the number of ingredients. They'll vet all the products. They'll go through every single one. And then at that time, offer replacement products, for example, alternatives, to, let's say a sauce you got you really wanted or you wanted a particular something and you know what you wanted a barbecue sauce but this one has wine in it and so you want another one so we'll do the back-end research and provide you the resources like the alternatives then when the store owner makes those changes then they contact us again and then we send the se- inspector for the second round ensuring everything has now been switched if it needs to be switched And then what we do is then we move forward with the contract. The contract is sent to them. They sign the contract. They send it back. 
And then shortly thereafter, we announce it publicly that this business gets established and uh, gets certified. After that, uh, but, but during this process, rather, we explain to the store owner that if at any point any of your proteins, chicken, lamb, beef, you are unable to find from the list of products that we supply you with, that we've done our research on, that we've verified, that we've approved, if at any point you have a difficulty in finding, and that's usually what we do. We send them five or six different products with different distributors, with different places you can purchase them at, so that they always have that list from day one. And then we tell them that if somehow or another, all of those products you're finding difficulty in finding uh, an alternative for, just reach out to us. We'll find another way. There are some local slaughterhouses here in the Bay Area in particular, right? In Northern California, I should say, that we can place an order for, from and get it within a couple of days. There are places that do offer those type of services. Now, uh, you know, whether or not the costs are whatever they are, you know, that's something which is an inevitable fact with uh, hand cut and especially with the rates of inflation as they are today. But for the most part, that's done in the beginning of the certification process. We offer the alternatives and we provide the list for it. And at any point, if the store owner is struggling, we also try to provide them some resources. The challenge oftentimes that, that comes up is, is that certain store owners in that time or in that process will struggle with finding a product and they'll purchase the product and start selling it without notifying the inspector. And like I mentioned, we do have this ongoing sort of reminder with our inspectors and the store owners that, hey, look, we are here for you in any capacity. Um, if you need support, we're here for you. If you need an alternative product, we're here for you. And as a matter of fact, there was one particular store owner that did reach out to um, Hafsa and to some of the masjids and said, hey, look, our business isn't doing so good. We'd love your support. And the masajid and the imams, we actually... Uh, they they went out of their way to make announcements and said, hey, guys, go support so-and-so business. They're not doing so good. As a Muslim community, we should support our Muslim businesses. And there was tremendous support for that business. So we love to see that happen. We love to see that support and that growth and that development. But like I said, sometimes with those obstacles, when they when when we're put in a position where a store owner is like, look, I have too much customers. I have too much demand. I'm going to switch my product. You figure it out for yourself. At that point, yes, I understand it puts Hafsa in a very tough position because it's a, a beloved restaurant, for example, or, you know, it's a restaurant where, you know, we, we try to keep the, um, this, um, the honor of the businesses by not mentioning the reason for their decertification. We leave that to the store owner and the individual customer. I know that some people request and people request all the time, let us know why. But you have to understand from this point of view, like I had mentioned, when Mufti Abdullah had told me originally that the goal of our organization is to just provide resources for people to eat based on the standards that we are sharing, then putting them on blast on social media and saying this is why they lost certification, etc. This is just going to further hurt the business, right? So we consider it a, a amicable way, as amicable as it can be, to decertify a business and leave the rest of that because it's sufficient for us a responsibility to mention that they've lost certification, the details of which they can inquire if they really want to on their own from the store owners. Um, but that's sort of a service that we hope to try to provide for these businesses so that they can you know, continue to function in their own right, in their own capacity. Thank you very much. Sorry, one more question uh, on this topic. Uh, sorry, Abbas, I'm taking, taking your uh, time here. Uh, but uh, just to follow up on this, uh, so let's say the restaurant 
has been decertified. So is there any kind of process by Hafsa to connect with them again to, to see if they can get them back on board and help them? Help Absolutely. Them the so we, we do have a general policy, um, and that is that if a store loses certification, we won't renew them until the new calendar year. Um, and that's just an internal policy. It's easier for tracking and also gives us some time to kind of work with the store owner. Um, we are inundated with a ton of different responsibilities at the same time. So if a store loses certification, it takes away from the credibility of the organization and the auditors if we recertify them right away. So we have a general internal policy that we have to wait one calendar year before reapplication. But at that time, we actually have a few stores in the Bay Area that did this and they ended up going through the wait, wait list process and then they reapplied in the new calendar year and they're still certified. And, um, you know, it was a decision that they had to make at that time, whatever it was, but we informed the community, well, we informed the store owner rather, that look, this is our policy. You understand it's going to be difficult that if you, if you believe it'll be difficult, we're sorry, but due to whatever circumstances happen that we remove the certification, we can't reissue it until the new calendar year. Um, and then at the same time, when they apply, we're right there to help them again, provide them whatever support they need, resources, um, to try to avoid the, the, you know, the issues that took place in the first place that got them to lose the certification. At no point has Hafsa ever really said no to any business seeking to get certified. Um, <clears throat> I guess this is a good place to mention this as well, which is, you know, oftentimes people say that, hey, there's a certification fee and, you know, we're concerned that that's going to make it difficult for us. And you know what? Again, to each their own. Um, I'll be very transparent about it for all our stores and grocery stores, uh, restaurants and grocery stores that get certified. We have a $25 a month um, certification fee that goes to really cover the expenses of our inspectors who do the weekly audits um, and they take time out of their day. And honestly, especially with the Bay Area, Northern California, there's a lot of driving, there's a lot of places to go to. And honestly, it doesn't even cover <clears throat> the true expenses. But we do offer that, we do have that, but we have never rejected a certification due to lack of funds, due to the $25 a month fee per certification per month. Um, that amounts to about $300 in the year. And we've never, if a restaurant owner literally told us, I can't afford $25 a month, I would say, hey, Let's get all your products onboarded. Let's make sure you are in line with the certification and we'll, we'll delay it. Let's do six months deferment. <clears throat> and we've done that in the past. We've done that for store owners. We've done that for grocery stores. We've done that for restaurants where we will defer <clears throat> the certification fee for a couple of months um, until they're comfortable with it. And then we'll check back in. Hey, it's the six month mark. We'd like to start from now. Um, some store owners are like, yeah, you know what? I'm doing good. Thank you so much. That was just a little help and we appreciate it. Others have even told us, you know, we need another six months and we oblige them because again, the point is this is not a money-making scheme. This isn't one of those things where there's a lack of transparency. This is just really for people who, for example, like myself, who only stick to the hand slaughter process, want to know with certainty that I can go to a store and eat only hand slaughter products. So yeah, I hope that answers a, a couple of questions. Mm. Yes, it did. I, re I really appreciate that. And, and Irfan, thanks for the, the drilling drilling down into some of these questions as well. And <clears throat> we, we really were getting a chance to see the nuts and bolts of what goes into the certification. Absolutely, absolutely. The decertification, the recertification, all of the different levels and processes of that. And this is really good for 
the community to know. But even beyond that, I think what's really striking is that I'm 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 really grateful in seeing also the ethos, the philosophy, the 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 adab and the akhlaq behind what's going on. And I mean, ultimately, when it comes down to it, someone who's eating hafsa is because they truly believe in a very traditional perspective. They have very strong belief. And and let's be honest, doing all that work, it's it's a lot of work for the average consumer. Right? I mean it's a it's a lot of work for you guys and, and this is this is the work that you're doing. Everything that you describe, it sounds like a lot of work. And so you're doing this so that other people don't have to, and that's an amazing um service and then that's a really uh, phenomenal endeavor. And you know, for people that have complaints about Hafsa don't eat hafsa then it's not that hard right. it's not it's really <laughs> it's really simple right and so but you know we're living in this age of social media and unfortunately a lot of times um hafsa does get a bad rap online and a lot of this is because it's not clear if people who talk about hafsa are actual representatives of hafsa or they're not because a lot of people will you know come on as experts and start talking and you're like oh this is some guy from the organization talking and then they start saying something really out of pocket right i'll give a, i'll give a couple examples just just so that um, i'd love to give you a chance to address these these issues and so that folks are aware of what is hafsa and what is not hafsa Right. I'll give you a couple examples. There's one example where a restaurant owner actually had um, complained to me and their restaurant has now shut down, unfortunately, mm. said that someone called and and berated them for a full half hour on the phone, saying that because you are not carrying hand slaughtered, because you're not even trying to go for Hafsa certification, this restaurant is not halal, berated this this female restaurant owner basically saying right that you're feeding the community haram and this completely broke her spirit um and the whole time on the call he's saying get hafsa get hafsa get hafsa right so now in her mind as she's talking to me it's like wow these guys are real bullies you know um or or similarly on 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 the facebook group chat um on on instagram wherever you find social media a lot of people will say um, oh, you're eating machine slaughtered. That is not halal. This is a haram restaurant. They'll pass that judgment. And they'll take it a step further and actually mock or berate or insult others and saying, you call yourself Muslim, you're not even eating, you know, hand slaughtered. And so it really gets down to that point. I'm wondering, first of all, you know, what? why do you think that even is? Why do you think that it, it gets to that point? And second of all, you know, just want to give you a chance to to address these things also from an official Hafsa standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. So like I had mentioned earlier, this none of this is in line with the um, organization at any point. Right. Right. I mean, I mean, like I said, you know, 15 years ago, Mufti Abdullah told me that's not our goal. That's been the policy ever since. And I've stuck true to that as much as I could, as much as we can, right? I'll even mm -hmm. take you, uh, I'll take that up one, uh, a boss where I had a store owner tell me come to his store for certification. I said, oh, absolutely. Drove 40 minutes to his store. He has all machine slaughter products in his store. And I said, oh, well, you know, brother, the point of the organization is that we only approve of hand slaughtered products. It was a grocery store. <clears throat> so I said, we only approve hand slaughtered products. If you'd like, I can work with you. I can find you some suppliers. I kid you not. 
right? He grabs me by my forearm very, very like harshly and pulls me towards him so that I'm like within a couple inches of his face and he's the face. And he says to me, he says, don't play games with me. Give me the certificate and I'll deal with this later. Wow. So I respectfully, I mean, in that moment, you would imagine, Hey, look, he put hands on me. He got wow. real physical with me. You know, wow. yeah, I, 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 I wouldn't be surprised if someone reacted right in a very not so o'clock way. Right. But mm-hmm. I, I didn't feel the need to respond that way because I knew, like, you know, everything here is on record. So I just said, listen, respectfully, please don't put your hands on me. I said, we can help you when it comes to this certification. But beyond that, none of this is going to work in, in any type of bullying fashion. I like, that's not how things work. You're not going to buy an inspector. You know, none, none of that kind of stuff goes, right? This isn't that, right. right? And even if, let's just throw out crazy hypotheticals. Even if you bought me out. I'm not the guy. I'm not the only guy that has to approve this. It's a there's a tier to this, right? I got supervisors that need to approve my submission of a restaurant. So they're gonna look mm-hmm. at me and be like, where's all the data? Where's all the invoices? Where's all the pictures that we normally go by? So <clears throat> going back to your original point that absolutely Hafsa does not condone any of this type of behavior, right? Um, like I said though, there are people that are extremely into making sure they only eat hand slaughtered. And we always tell people, whenever we do our educational programs, whenever we do our community open house, whenever we do our um, workshops or seminars or symposiums nationally, we always tell people, you should speak to store owners. If you disagree with them because they have machine slaughter, then politely speak to them. Maybe that will convince them to change perhaps, right? But if you hold views that machine slaughter is haram, then okay, that's your personal view. You can hold that and don't eat there. Just like if you also disagree with some of the policies of Hafsa, that's okay. Don't engage. Don't follow us, right? Don't try to cause uh, political drama or arguments or conflicts, etc. Because the objective here is to get stores to, to promote the hand slaughtered product because it's a <clears throat> universal product for everybody. Whereas yeah. those who follow, you know, any deviation from that, then that becomes a slightly smaller demographic. Um, so again, I feel terrible that this uh, woman had to experience this thing. Whether it's on the phone, in person, online, again, we have to remember though, like, even though you feel very strongly about something, the best example for us in our entire life and everything we do is the life of the Prophet Ali Salatu Wasalam. So where where in that does does you know berating a store owner come from? Where where what did you hope to achieve by doing that? You know, to me that just mm-hmm. sounds like an aunt, uh, an angry uncle, like an angry like like my dad when he gets mad or something, right? Like he's gonna yell at me like, "I didn't I tell you to clean up your room?" and like this, that, and the other. Like that <laughs> seems like a very different relationship than how you would want to like actually get somebody to switch over. Even if yeah. you were to give somebody dawah to come to Islam. Right. Nobody's going to go really and just start like kind of like poking fun at other people and like putting them down and making them feel terrible. That's not going to get anybody on your side, but rather yeah. you get people on your side. I mean, subhanAllah, there's a there's a famous hadith that the Prophet mentions that mm-hmm. the, the one of the sole object, objectives of why I was sent as a Nabi was to perfect moral character. So if that was one of the objectives of Nubu'a was his was perfection of, of moral characters and and to remove the evil qualities, then that is something that as an individual Muslim, we should be concerned that how we are acting with other Muslims is not reflective of our religion at all. Um, 
Of course, Hafsa, like I mentioned again, just to be extremely clear, doesn't condone that. And even those people that are gung ho like that, you know, we tell people, look, you're even if you're a Hafsa supporter, you're not helping. You know, that's, that's, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's not the help that we need. Help that we would need would be like you go and say, "Can I speak to the store owner? I'd like to share with you that my personal views. I live here, for example. I live down the street. I really want to eat your food at this restaurant. It looks so amazing. It looks so delicious. It's just that I have a limitation because I only eat hand soldered. So with, mm-hmm. and even if he disagrees with you, at least there won't be animosity. At least there won't be hatred. At least, and maybe the store owner will will learn something new. Maybe the store mm-hmm. owner will share, hey, I didn't even know that was a thing, you know, and you open up a new channel of communication. That's such a beautiful, organic, nice, kind way to carry a conversation and to potentially encourage mm-hmm. a store owner to change suppliers. And who knows, maybe that's what, uh, that maybe that's the type of uh, kindness that they need and to, to switch over, right? So, yeah, again, yeah. it's an unfortunate situation, set of situations, but, um, you know, it's not encouraged and nobody from Hufsa's end would ever sort of at least nobody officially uh, associated to the organization would ever act in such a, uh, a harsh and inappropriate way, or at least I would yeah. strongly hope so. Yeah. It's education and etiquette. It just, it's, it, it's really funny because it's a, a few years ago and I say funny now because I can laugh about it at the time it was a little stressful, but um, <clears throat> I remember we had a lot of drama in the Facebook group, basically about the etiquette of like, how do you, like, how do you convey this message to other people? Like, Hey, I'm hand slaughtered. Your machine slaughtered. We're not going to get along. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to bully this page, this post, this restaurant. And so we were really cracking down on this because we want to create a peaceful space. And the funniest thing to this day is they ended up as like a, a, you know, a small group of people. They ended up creating a Facebook group called uh, Bay Area Hand Slaughtered Halal Foodies, mm. copying everything from my logo to my description to my banner, everything to the T. They're like, you know what? We're just going to make our own group. I'm like, all right, fine. Um, that group is 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 not really active anymore. So we've seen in the long run. Um, but it was very, it's very clear that a lot of people are acting out of spite, out of resentment, out of these, right. <clears throat> a lot of these issues, which I think if we ate less red meat, maybe we would have less intense emotions anyways. But anyways, that's not... <laughs> that's I'll, not I'll, I'll, I will no, add, brother. I'll uh, maybe... That's going to what... too far. That's going <laughs> too far, brother. Don't say that. I, I would just add maybe uh, I think especially with these social media platforms, you know, obviously the challenges you get is that you're not face to face. Right. So you feel emboldened. You, you feel so much more courageous to say certain things. And, you know, you might not say that in front of somebody. Right. You might not have the audacity to say that in front of somebody. Um, I think I, I personally hold the view that if a store, you know, posts online, um, hey, with this a new store or I just ate at this new restaurant and the community asks well, do you know if it's hand soldered or machine soldered? My personal view on that is that's helpful for me to know. But I think when it goes beyond just that and it starts to go, like you had mentioned, into bullying, name calling, putting people down, absolutely. I, I, I have, I myself and I'm sure others in Hafsa also hold this view that that's not in line with any of our Islamic methodology or practice. It's not within the spirit of the Sunnah. It's not acceptable, right? Uh, because you're you're hurting another Muslim, and to hurt another Muslim or to harm another Muslim is haram. So, I think that there are certain degrees of communication that, sadly, a lot of people lack. You know, the uh, awareness or the emotional awareness to sort of put that into perspective. You know, person's trying to do their best; they're working hard. That's okay. You know, 
let me try to support that person. This kind of reminds me of a, of a famous story that once someone came to Imam Ghazali and they said, oh, great Sheikh, you know, so-and-so person is not coming to the masjid no more for prayer. What's the fatwa on him, right? He's not coming to the masjid for prayer. What's the fatwa on him? You know, and all the, all everybody's just sitting there eagerly waiting for the big fatwa, right? Like, you know, like, we're going to mob him. We're going to go, let's take the mob. We're going to go pitchforks and thing, burn down his house and get him and drag him to the... So the sheikh said, the fatwa is, ready for this? The fatwa is that you go and you gently grab his hand and you walk with him to the masjid. That's the fatwa. And everyone was just like, oh. And it's like, yeah, we're not trying to harm anybody. If the guy's going through something, let's go check out what the situation is. Let's go see how he's doing. Maybe he couldn't make it to the masjid because he got sick. Maybe he was going through financial difficulties, right? So it's counterintuitive to how a lot of people function and, 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 and act nowadays. But that's the point of these reminders and this education and understanding the spirit behind it, right? It's not just a matter of like literally just I'm only eating this thing, but there's a spirit behind it. It has an effect on us. So if in the example of Imam Ghazali, the person's not coming to the masjid. So the fatwa isn't, you know, go burn him down, call him, leave bad Yelp reviews and, you know, scream at him. But rather it's gently go take his hand and say, hey, let's go to the masjid together. I haven't seen you in a while. Let's go hang out. Let's go pray salah and we'll, we'll talk afterwards. Right. And in the example of the restaurant owner, it's, hey, you know, um, I don't personally eat machine soldered meat. I would love it if you could try to bring that product into your restaurant. I'd love to connect you with the people who can facilitate that for you. Where's the harm in that? Right. Really? I mean, we can never avoid unsolicited advice. Right. And no matter where, where you are in life. I'm a marriage counselor by profession and trade. People ask me all the time, like, oh, why do people giving me advice on how to live my marriage? I'm like, look, look you're getting mad at the wrong thing people will always give you advice right <laughs> have a kid here and don't have a kid now well why aren't you having kids or why aren't you married people will never stop that but the better way to look at it is despite all the unsolicited advice how am i in my marriage going to uh, what of that advice am i going to take and implement that i will consult with my partner so in the same thing in the matter of food right it's a better way to have that conversation with gentleness, with kindness, and to just be direct about it. Very Absolutely. Good. I totally agree with that. I don't know how Erfan feels. We have a boxer behind him and a sword behind him. <laughs> He's ready to fight. <laughs> that red hey, meat, man. Hey, hey, hey. Uh, okay, so we kind of over an hour, but I'll just have one last question. I mean, I have multiple more questions, but I'll just keep it to one last one since <laughs> I know uh, everybody has to go. Um, you know, recently, you know, on the WhatsApp group, we had some discussions about, um, you know, eating from the people of the book. So can you give us a quick <laughs> two minute version of what is the what is your opinion as a Mufti? You're a Mufti now. So give us what's your what's your fatwa on that? So so what I'll say is I'll I'll, I'll respond in in uh, sort of what I I'll put it this way. The, the, the best answer I can give, that's probably the most, um, the simplest, but the most that make the makes that makes the most sense, uh, is that first and foremost, we have to understand that when you don't live in America and you're not from here, taking fatwas from outside of the country is against the principles of fatwa, right? When you have qualified muftis and scholars in the country or the city that you're from, you take from those people first. That's kind of policy number one. Point number two is the idea that America is a Christian country 
is a hotly debated issue, namely because the founding fathers who literally got together and came here and created this country and the constitution, they had absolutely no intention of keeping this, of, of this being a Christian nation. That wasn't their intent. They're, right. They're Secular nation. They had absolute, they say, actually, there was a CNN um, article on this that talked about what were the founding fathers' actual intentions behind the formation of this nation. And the main idea was for them to function, to, to run their businesses, to run and do things freely away from the church. They wanted to do things freely. So actually, if I'm not mistaken, I don't want to misquote. I think it was either Benjamin Franklin or um, one of the one of the other founding fathers who met who actually said, I don't care if my neighbor has a uh, worships a single God or 20 gods. It is of no interest to me at all. Mm. And on that, it was also mentioned that, that one of the other founding fathers said that I don't consider this a Christian nation, but rather a nation of Christians. And, yeah. the, and the point that he was trying to make by making that statement was that that was never the intention. It just so happened to be that a bunch of Christians ended up coming here, but that was never the intention of the foundation of this country. So that's just an, a historical fact. An additional point that I'll add to that is even if hypothetically you want to say that America is a Christian country, this America follow Christian values. Is policy in line with Christian values and ordeals? Absolutely not. The, the whole concept of a separation of church and state exists in America. They're telling you, we don't want that association. So we're hearing this firsthand from the Christian community, from all the branches of Catholicism and Christianity that are openly saying this is not a Christian country, right? And we don't follow those belief systems. So first and foremost, from the top down government level, there is no engagement or involvement of the of the. Uh, Christian values. The second thing is also, right? The second thing is also is that in terms of their practices, there's interest, right, in the banking system. So usury exists. Slaughter method is not in line with anything that's kosher or that you would say is from the practice of Ahlul Kitab, right? The practice of Ahlul Kitab would be to slaughter the animal, taking the name of God at the time of slaughter. And the, the, the rabbi or the, the priest is slaughtering the animal. That doesn't happen. In modern commercial slaughterhouses in America, that doesn't happen. That's considered too slow. If they're going to do that, might as well just do halal. And clearly, we don't see them doing halal, right? Mm -hmm. So this is really important to understand that um, I actually implore people to try to call, your, uh, call a slaughterhouse, a beef slaughterhouse, halal or not, and just to go see what that process looks like, right? And I'll maybe end on this note that during the time of the Prophet والسلام, when, when Muslims were eating you know, some of the meat from the Ahlul Kitab, the Jews or the Christians, you have to understand, right, there was no difference between the way they killed an animal and the way that Muslims killed an animal. Because their belief was one, that there was a single solitary God. They believed that um, they were monotheistic in nature and in tradition and religion. And they all killed the animals in the same way. Right. As opposed to some pagans who actually don't kill animals in the same way. Right. Hindus, for example, engage in a type of slaughter known as jatka. And jatka is a, uh, a solitary blow or ideally a solitary blow to the back of the neck with the machete mm. while the animal is fully awake and sort of almost in a state of awe seeing a crowd. That's not OK. Right. 
Mongolians, especially Mongolian uh, and um, uh, polytheists, right? The traditionalists, they're sort of like, a, 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 they worship the spirit and the animals. They actually kill their animals by making a small incision in the lower abdomen and taking out the intestines and tying it back up and allowing the animal to die in its pain in that process. And they consider the meat to be some kind of a delicacy. That's their method of slaughter or kill, right? So if something like that were to take place, both Muslims and Jews and Christians would have seen that and says, oh, no, we don't. That's not the way of our kill. Right. So the Jews and the Christians and the Muslims all were killing with a sharp blade, taking the name of God, cutting the throat, the jugular and ensuring the animal bled out. And unfortunately, we don't see any of that really happening in America, with the exception of very small, um, maybe Orthodox Jew, Jewish slaughterhouses that do that and Muslims. And so. I mean, there's so much more to be said about this, but I think, unfortunately, um, stuff that gets spread online should stay online and should not get um, put into practice. It's caused a ton of harm, and maybe we need another podcast just to answer that question. So, yeah, but. seriously, I didn't. I, that's a lot of great history I didn't know. And Irfan, that's so not fair, man. You can't ask such a profound question. And be like, <laughs> all right, two minute answer, <laughs> two minute quick summary. Yeah. Oh, that was good. That was good. I think it's good, good, good summary. Yeah. One That's last, beautiful. one last question here. In the future, with AI, if they come with robots and they have their own uh, <laughs> consciousness and they have a knife in their hand, and does that count as hand slaughtered? AI slaughtered <laughs> lab oh, me. Let's go. <laughs> the the monkeys are gonna have a field day with that. Question, so, <laughs> bro, I'm just I'm I'm hungry for a bida burger, man. Let's get as much of these innovations as we can. <laughs> So, Hamza, I know we covered a lot of really heavy, heavy um, topics. I just, I'm very grateful and I want to end on maybe a lighthearted note. What did the buffalo say to his child when he dropped him off at the college dorm? Bye, son. Bye, son. <laughs> and with that, we say bye to uh, all of the people who have been listening. And really, if you have any questions about Hafsa, reach out to Hafsa. Um, you know, if you if you can't reach out to Hafsa, reach out to us and we'll connect you because really, if you hear something, what is it? There's this quote from Imam Ali Assam, and I'll end with this. He says, the difference between the truth and falsehood is four fingers. It's a difference between what hear, seeing something and hearing something. Mm. So if you hear something, verify it. That'll be that's the moral of, of today's story. We are so grateful for Sheikh Jaber and all the efforts of Hafsa in serving the needs of the Muslim community. We are excited to continue exploring the halal industry from various angles throughout Season 3. So stay tuned for more. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Artistic Foodies. And before we go, show some love for your favorite podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to find us on Facebook and Instagram to stay tuned for more episodes as well as bonus content. You can also have access to all of our episodes at theartisticfoodies.com. This podcast has been brought to you by Halal Fest Incorporated and Gamma, gathering all Muslim artists.